Hey folks, welcome back to Mind Matters. Today we'll be looking at John F. Shoemaker's book, In Search of Happiness, Understanding an Endangered State of Mind. Uh, it's really about, ultimately, something we've been talking about on the show for quite a long time now, values. And uh, in his book, Schumacher lambasts the happiness industry, as well as a number of other paradigms that are common to contemporary Western culture, and tells us why these paradigms of happiness, things that we're told to pursue in order to make ourselves feel happy, are in fact quite often those things that make us desperately unhappy and leave us in a kind of uh, downward spiral of um, meaninglessness, um, unhappiness, and, uh, and constantly looking for the new thing that our, uh, our society says will make us happy. Um, he also looks at a number of strategies and approaches to life that uh, seem at odds to what we've been told will make us happy. Uh, but that have a kind of history and long-standing tradition in certain cultures of success. So we'll be discussing a few of those things as well today. And um, it's interesting. It, it, the overall uh, feeling I get from the book is that um, happiness, something that we're all kind of seeking on some level or another, uh, isn't something that we can attain um, head on or directly. It's rather something that, uh, that, that is an outgrowth of, um, the values that we hold, the things that we think, the actions that we take. And, um, it's just sort of a natural byproduct of, of the way we live our lives and, and the things that we, uh, we hold dear to us, the things that we prioritize, the things that we give our energy to. Um, so we'll be looking at a number of different, uh, things that we may be doing consciously and unconsciously, uh, in the pursuit of happiness, things that we're kind of programmed to follow through on. Um, a big, uh, one of those things is, uh, consumerism and materialism. Uh, we'll be getting into that too, but first I wanted to start uh, by reading a couple of passages on the subject of humility and compassion, which uh, Schumacher comes back to in the book as kind of uh, these cornerstones of, um, of character and values that would seem to um, naturally make us happy when we practice them. Uh, so here are a couple of passages. He says, Humility is the ability to see through the mirror and not to be continually distracted by one's own reflection. It has nothing to do with humiliation. The actual word humble traces to the Latin word humilis, related to humus or earth. Humility is a state of groundedness in which we are aware that we are part of a larger whole. It prevents the lapses into arrogance that generate conflict and obscure the harmonies that lace themselves into earthly existence. Humility makes it easier to be honest and authentic, which promotes healthy relationships and greater overall social being. Despite its ability to contribute to deep happiness, humility has become largely extinct as a character trait. 
but as various times in the past and in other cultures, it was seen as a kind of greatness. Humility is an intelligent self-respect that allows us to maintain a balanced perception of ourselves and the world around us. Within it is a comforting realism that insulates us from false hope, disappointment, and dejection. Humility is a high level of consciousness that readies the mind for life's ups and downs. It can smooth the transitions from one stage of life to another. Humility stimulates the positive type of small-mindedness that is currently in such short supply. And then he goes on to discuss compassion a little bit. He says, the word compassion comes from the Latin words calm and passio, which together literally mean with, suf- with suffering. It may be that the alleviation of others' suffering is a life meaning that transcends all others, but that involves too much compromise for most palates today. Compassion still feels good in small doses, and token acts of charity have even become fashionable, especially if they have an audience. But compassion fatigue sets in very quickly with today's pain-allergic consumers. Compassion and narcissism are opposite ends of the continuum. Just as self-absorbed narcissists make excellent consumers, highly compassionate people are flops in the, consum- in the consumption stakes. By its design, compassion is a mindscape that makes people and life, rather than objects and pleasures, into top priorities. The whole goal of consumer indoctrination is to shift priorities to the material realm while sweeping life considerations under the carpet. Now, uh, in a little bit of an act of humility, Harrison, I thought I would just share that um, I, I am not immune to uh, going on Amazon and, and looking at products and reading reviews and wanting the very best of whatever it is that I decided I really want or really need. And um, it, uh, it surprises me sometimes how much uh, energy can go into such a pursuit. Um, and like I'd read this book a few years ago. So in the back of my mind, whenever this happens, whenever I'm, I'm on YouTube, uh, researching a product or, or going on Amazon, there's this little voice in the back of my head that reminds myself, this isn't going to really make me happy. I have this dopamine hit right about now uh, in anticipation of when I attain this, this object that is you know, the, the perfect little, whatever it is. Um, and of course, there's something to be said about researching and getting the best value for your money and, and, and looking for what you need and reading what other people have to say about it. So it's not so black and white as that, but there is certainly a, an element of, of looking for happiness where uh, it's ephemeral, where it's, um, it's, it's cheap. It's not this kind of deep happiness that Schumacher is, is discussing here and uh, is laying out for us to, um, that's available, really. Um, but it does require work. It does require... Uh, certainly requires uh, us being honest with ourselves about how we how we go about um, trying to attain happiness, getting a fix of something, um, and it could be, you know, it could be in the form of a cookie, it could be in the form of ten cookies, or or a drink, 
or uh, or binging on some show. Um, but I I have to say, you know, I've I've noticed that those times when I've uh, quite often there there is a certain amount of momentary pleasure, uh, this dopamine hit, as I mentioned. But then there's um, you know, if I'm really paying attention, uh, there is a, a time afterward. It's like a it's like a a little bit of a a, a depression, a little bit of a um, an emptiness, a sadness, uh, because what comes up must go down, mm-hmm. and um, and so it's very interesting to re- revisit this book and to think about those ways that can be cultivated. Uh, in ourselves to create a, a deep happiness. Mm-hmm. Well, um, <clears throat> I guess the first thing I want to talk about is what really is happiness. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because uh, one of the points that uh, Shoemaker makes in the book is that uh, we do live in a time where happiness is is seen as the goal, right? And people are, are looking for happiness. And so he quotes you know, a lot of titles of books published and articles in magazines and about the search for happiness and and how happiness is just it's all over the place, and then there are all the polls about um, asking people how the, what their life satisfaction is, how happy they are, and um, people seem to be to to have a drive, not only an internal drive, but there's also the social um, like push for you know the achievement of happiness. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the several points he makes in the book is that you know happiness isn't so simple, and um, and that one of the ways in which people strive for happiness and the way that they think about it is in terms of these kind of dopamine hits, like these short-term pleasures, basically. And I think Shoemaker would agree that that isn't really um, happiness, and, and at, least, at least not happiness as he's talking about it and as you know, many others have thought about it. Because um, they're... How does he put it? He, he basically says that there's this, like, what he calls like supercharged happiness that we, that people are are striving for, and it's this uh, it is tied with this um, consumerism and materialism, and it's like it's it's getting the stuff to make you happy, and um, and yet people aren't don't seem to be very happy. Like uh, they might they might say that uh, you know they've got relatively decent lives, but like depression rates are are rising, suicide rates are rising, and it doesn't seem like we're very happy. So. Um, so what does it what does it mean? Like what is it um, actually? He basically I don't I don't know if I know he talks about like the ancient philosophers like Aristotle and then the Stoics and their their kind of views on happiness. And I think he'd probably um, I think he'd probably be mo- be more in line with those with that philosophical school. So if, like for with Aristotle for instance, he he said that happiness was the the ultimate goal of of humanity. I believe that the Greek was eudaimonia or something like that, eudai, eudaimonia, and um, but he had this whole system of what well, what exactly is happiness? So um, there's like here's here's a definition from um, pursuitofhappiness.org, which is devoted to pursuit of happiness. It goes through all kinds of things like uh, various philosophers and their thoughts on happiness, and then all kinds of like scientific studies and and other things like that. I just found it while researching for the show. So according to them, like after a a write-up on Aristotle, here's their conclusion about what he thought of happiness. Happiness is the the ultimate end and purpose of human existence. Happiness is not pleasure, nor is it virtue. It is the exercise of virtue. 
Happiness cannot be achieved until the end of one's life, hence it is a goal, not a temporary state. Happiness is the perfection of human nature. Since man is a rational animal, human happiness depends on the exercise of his reason. Happiness depends on acquiring a moral character, where one displays the virtues of courage, generosity, justice, friendship, and citizenship in one's life. Those virtues involve striking a balance or mean between an excess and a deficiency. Happiness requires intellectual contemplation, for this is the ultimate realization of our rational capacities. So that was kind of like, that's, that's how people, at least who have like read the classics for you know, hundreds of years, have thought about happiness, at least in that context, in the context of, of ethics. And you know, if you are engaged in any kind of like intellectual contemplation, that might be something that you, that, that you defined, that, at least that definition of, of happiness. So uh, it's greatly, it's, like, it's way more expansive than the idea of happiness just being like this, this feeling that you have. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's one of the, one of the, um, the, criticism that Schu- the criticisms that Shoemaker has about this search for happiness is that we're, we're looking for a, a state to be in, a mood to be in, or an right. emotion to, to feel in a, in a given moment. And like you said, you know, what goes up must come down. So like moods don't last forever. Emotions don't last forever. Like when, when they do, when they, when they're, when they go on for an abnormally long time, then we generally consider that to be a form of like mental illness, like, like being in a state of mania, for instance, or or a severe depression. Mm -hmm. Um, In the ordinary functioning of emotions, like emotions, like they come when they're needed and they don't last very long. They can last longer and it can become like a mood where we're like a, feeling an emotion for an extended period of time. Um, but to, to constantly be, you know, going for the hit is like, is essentially, um, it's, it's a form of like natural drug addiction. It's like you're, you're basically looking for a drug hit exactly. like repeatedly over and over. And that, uh, that doesn't work essentially. What, what you, if you are looking for, um, like a, a long-lasting sense of you know whatever you think of as happiness, you're not going to get it by just going for those hits, those repeated hits, and and trying and seeking them out like uh, like some kind of like sensation seeker, like adrenaline junkie. Yeah. It's uh, you're you're not actually going to get the goal that you um, that you're seeking out to to fulfill. So um, like after that, the Stoics basically had a similar idea, basically saying that. Uh, you know the, the the goal the goal of of humanity was basically reason because we are rational animals like uh, like Aristotle thought and that the the like to achieve happiness would basically be to to live um, uh, in accordance with nature I believe that's the way they put it and when so that the the idea would be if you are living in accordance with nature with your human nature then you would be happy so the question then becomes well what is human nature. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Stoics had their whole system, and that's you know that's what every kind of religion and and philosophy seeks out to define is what it means to be human. Because if you can understand what it means to be human, you can understand what uh, what your purpose might be, what the collective purpose might be, and that might uh, well hopefully that might inform um, your own personal individual purpose, you know, within that larger purpose. So um, that's one of the first, and I think one of the most important points that Shoemaker makes is that. We were when we're looking at like uh, like momentary, like passing pleasures, that uh, that probably has a role in in like human life, in human nature, and in ha- overall happiness. But it's leaving out all of these other aspects that must contribute to to that must contribute to this state of happiness that we're allegedly seeking. Yeah. So he talks about like um, um, he gives a list. Um, 
it, he basically says it, it neglects important aspects that contribute to happiness. So he, he gives the examples of like uh, social, spiritual, um, like relational and intellectual aspects to searching for, uh, for happiness. Basically, if you're, if you're only, um, if you're only feeding this kind of self-centered, selfish, self-oriented, um, like a part of yourself that wants its own pleasures for itself, you're going to be missing out on like the, the social aspect of human nature that you're not fulfilling and the intellectual aspects like Aristotle thought too. And, um, and like, uh, and spiritual and, uh, and yeah, let's like the, all of these things, basically you have to be, you have to be, um, aiming at, a at multiple targets at the same time, which might constitute like one large target in order to, to, to get the bullseye and the bullseye being happiness. And even then, like if you're a stoic or Aristotle, it's like you might never even get there. It's just the goal that you're constantly pushing towards. Um, and by, by, um, by acting in such a way and living your life like in, in accordance with that direction, then maybe you'll eventually get happiness. But for them, it's like, it's not something that you are actually like, oh, I'm happy right now. It's like, no, happiness was the goal. Uh, that was like the, the, the result of living uh, a good life, right. of striving for the good. And not like, not something that, well, you, you could even make a comparison to like the religious framework of heaven and hell, right? It, it's not, you're striving for heaven and you might get little pieces of, of good things along the way in your life, but like in the religious perspective, heaven comes after you die. It's not something that uh, necessarily you experience like in its full totality during life. And happiness is, would be something similar. Happiness is a goal that comes after you've lived your life. You know, maybe is I, I don't know for sure what the what the Stoics and Aristotle thought if if happiness might be achieved like late in life or if you had to die first. I don't know. I don't think so. But uh, but it was basically um, something that you had to really work for. And in that perspective, from that perspective, then you can look, okay, so you've got someone like living their life in such a way that, um, that true happiness, like pure happiness, as Shoemaker might call it, is the goal that they're, um, that they're aiming at, uh, like the target that they're aiming at. And, but then as they're doing that, through that through, throughout their life, that'll have certain um, like ramifications, certain consequences for what happens in their life and then what they experience in their life. So and so there will be social, intellectual, spiritual aspects, and like uh, and personal ones, of course. And and in those in those situations, like uh, like for someone today, like who's pursuing that as a life path, they might have moments with the, of what they'd call happiness. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh wow, I really felt happy in this moment. Um, but but that won't be the goal. Like the goal isn't to experience those those uh, feelings of happiness. Like. Um, um, I just read a book on uh, Thomas Aquinas to get an idea of, of his kind of like theology and philosophy. And he was like an Aristotelian. Um, so he kind of was in that tradition. And for him, um, how did he put it? Like pleasures and like pleasures and like what we might call like moments of happiness were for him um, like the, the what happens when you um, when you realize a good so when you when you basically realize something that's in your nature, like that might might even be like um, like feeding yourself, like eating. So because because at, like um, for for Aquinas and for Aristotle, we kind of like had levels. So like on on the basic physical like biological level, there are certain goals inherent in human nature, and one of them is to feed yourself so that you survive, so that you don't die. And we have that in common with all um, like all life forms, for instance. So that feels good, like right? It feels good when you're 
when you have a meal, when you're not starving. Mm-hmm. And so that, that feeling would be the, the, basically the fulfillment of that, that, uh, that end, that goal that is within you. And if you just go up, on the, go up the levels, it's like you, you can find instances in, in all of those levels where things feel good. Where there's just a, a general feeling of like a well-being, of well-being and harmony. It's mm-hmm. like so. So you can have that feeling, um, like emotionally, when you're when you're having a good time with a person. Could be when you're joking around with them and you're having a, a fun, good conversation. Right, that feels good, and those are those are the memories that kind of like that we tr- that we cherish. And especially if they're with like with loved ones, doing something meaningful with a with a loved one, with your family or with your friends. And then also intellectually, like when you're. When you're thinking about something or you're reading about something and something makes sense or you make a connection, it's like that feels good. It's like, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that and that, that makes sense now. Like All these things are like, it's a, it's a positive emotion. And so that would be like the realization of an end or a purpose or a goal or hitting a target, you know, along that way. But for, for all these thinkers, I think, and Shoemaker included, it's like but the, the big picture is what you have to look at. It's like, how are you living your life in totality? Mm-hmm. Um, like, what, what's the totality in which you find those little moments of happiness? And that's what, uh, um, well, I think that's what we should get into. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that's very true. I mean, he, he looks at so many different uh, dimensions to what makes a person happy, uh, what we're told should make us happy, um, one of the things that he gets into, um, with compassion, with service to others, uh, is something that we've been reading about quite a bit on Sat, which is that people who, um, who actually take a certain amount of time per week to, uh, to give of themselves in a, in a kind of volunteer capacity, uh, quite often feel like they are happier, uh, or more fulfill- fulfilled, and seem less susceptible to the thoughts of unhappiness or depression or sadness uh, because of this kind of outward directional flow of energy and attention uh, that they're giving to others. Um, but you said something a little earlier about uh, the Stoics and, and um, this kind of life of reflection and, and uh, intellectual development, um, which I found interesting because... Um, uh, another thing you said was that, you know, we're constantly looking for stimulation, uh, things that will excite us and, um, and, uh, you know, give us that, that short thrill of, of entertainment that, um, that we think will make us happy. Um, and, uh, the shoemaker has a few interesting things to say about boredom. Um, and, and the reasons why, uh, boredom, uh, in one sense, makes us very depressed and uh, and in need of um, uh, assistance and help. But if approached in a certain way, can also be uh, very productive. We don't need to be stimulated all the time. We don't have to be looking for this this kind of um, this kind of uh, something that will fill the void of of boredom that we're experiencing in our lives. Um, so just wanted to read this. He says, uh, but the modern economy loves nothing more than a society of people trying to spend their way out of the black hole of boredom and ennui. If this, of this anthropologist Gregory Batson wrote recently that quote, our economy has become very dependent on the whole cycle of boredom, novelty, more boredom, and more entertainment. 
Similarly, James Fitchett of the University of Nottingham presented a conference paper titled The Anatomy of Apathy, Perspectives on Consumer Boredom, in which he points out that boredom has become the chosen pathology of the consumption-oriented, market-structured age in which we live. It is clear that the preferred citizen has become one whose attempts to be happy have been channeled into escaping the, quote, hell of the same, as it has been called. The booming boredom industry is doing everything in its power to sell the idea that we deserve to be thrilled every moment of our lives. It is generally assumed that the best way to conquer boredom is to find something that is stimulating. But this approach has proven ineffective with the chronic boredom that is now so prevalent. Stimulation and diversion only seem to hasten the process whereby the bored person reaches the point of no return and becomes unresponsive and even neurologically drained. Boredom experts have come to see that the best cure for boredom is boredom. It is far better to write out one's feelings of boredom than to fight them whenever they arise. This breaks the cycle of needing increasingly stronger stimulation in order to get the same relief. Sounds like drug addiction. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it gradually allows one to reverse the cycle and begin to experience emotion without all the forced promptings. Um, He's got a great passage somewhere in the book. I think it's a a quote from um, a writer uh, who describes drinking tea and the, uh, the, the pleasure, the momentary pleasure of just appreciating this simple and expensive, subtle uh, cup of tea. Um, and it, it goes back to the idea that um, we, we've been told we need these big things to satisfy ourselves. Uh, there's this constant drive to attain these big things. Um, but there are momentary pleasures uh, where, if given our full attention, can uh, fill us and, and make us happy. Not, not quite in the same way as uh, attaining goals or making connections, as you were saying earlier. Um, but, but there are things that, that we can uh, do for ourselves, small things, uh, that, that can give us the pleasure that we would, um, that we're used to paying much more to attain. Um, and this gets into another idea that Schumacher gets into, which is the pursuit of success, material success, uh, especially in Western culture. And how uh, that's also a drive that has this kind of never-ending um, end goal where the, the more you attain, seemingly the more you are without or the more you want because of this competitive um, uh, dichotomy that we set up in our minds with other people and what they have. And uh, it's the reason why greed is so prevalent in the U.S. It's the reason why people are in incredible amounts of debt more than they ever were. Uh, and it's the reason why uh, people just shut down after a while in you know pursuing the rat race trying to um fulfill ambitions that are neither necessary uh or productive ultimately 
So that's also another uh, kind of big, big piece to this whole thing. It's it's pursuing uh, ambitions that um, that don't ultimately provide value in a person's life, but that detract the time and the energy that you might otherwise give to your family members or friends uh, or pursuits that are um, soul feeding. Um, so that's another big one. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that reminded me of a couple sentences in the book. Um, I'll just read. He said, uh, as a personality trait, materialism has shown has been shown by numerous studies to create obstacles to happiness. Among other things, a strong materialistic orientation has been associated with envy, narcissism, relationship problems, and a diminished ability to feel empathy for others. Mm-hmm. Then a couple pages later, um, he writes, um, quoting a dissertation by Judith Ann Johnson on greed, um, where she argued that greed is primarily determined by culture. So it's not just like the... Um, like greed would be a uh, like a universal like human like tendency, but the like the prevalence of greed and like the impact that it has is culturally de- determined. And she found that um, <clears throat> maximal greed was produced by a combination of capitalism, materialism, hyper competition, and discrimination. Um, having not having read Johnson, you know that dissertation, I'll just I'll take him at his I'll take her and him at his word, um, just as a starting out point. Because if you if you think about that, a combination of capitalism, materialism, hypercompetition, and discrimination. So I guess she'd probably be looking at uh, different countries and and uh, like comparing the cultures of uh, of different countries, and that the you'd find the maximal greed when those are combined. And of course, when you when you have a culture like that that is hyper competitive, you know, with rampant discrimination and materialism and capitalism, it's kind of a rep- uh, a recipe for disaster because that's a very like one-sided development, kind of like you know we were talking earlier about this uh, this sensation seeking and striving for these uh, like moments of passing pleasure. It's like that's very one-sided. You're you're leaving out all of the other things that will give that will, that will give a more broad and uh, you know expansive happiness by focusing on on just these these tiny little things. So you've got uh, um, the it's it's so there's a there's a combination of well, I guess you know all the things that go into culture. So there would be like the 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 unstated but um, acted out um, like principles on which uh, like a culture is based. These would be the like um, so that basically that's um, an example would be with this materialistic framework. So a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think about it, right? They they just kind of um, adopt it by osmosis. They just they're raised in that in that. Uh, environment and it just becomes part of them they don't think oh i'm a materialist and um and i believe this this and this it's just they just act it out right it's something they act out unconsciously and um if you so when you combine that with this hyper competitiveness it is this very individualistic um um, like worldview where it's very easy to see in that environment how how people would be basically trained and and programmed to think only of themselves and to think only of those uh, of the of those pl- those momentary pleasures that they're seeking for, and it's it's like the, you know, it's like the that they're constantly searching for it, but it you know it, it's never enough, right? And that I think that's what you're talking about uh, in that quote with uh, where you made the reference to drug addiction. It's like you're constantly chasing something and you never quite get it. Of course, that's what happens in drug addiction. It's also what happens um, in um, what was the example I was I was thinking of. 
where, um, well, just basically, well, yeah, the example I was thinking of was actually serial killers. Because uh, um, what was the book? Who Who Fights Monsters, I think it was. Uh, this book on... Whoever Fights Monsters. Whoever Fights Monsters. Mm -hmm. Where he's talking about serial killers and the work he's done with them. So I can't remember the author, sorry. Um, but he was basically like an FBI profiler. I think he was one of the guys that uh, that they based the Mindhunters show, the David Fincher one, on. And um, he's talking about... Well, the reason I bring up psycho, uh, psychopaths and serial killers, it's just kind of like a really extreme example to show um, basically what... I know where you're going. Yeah, what happens... Um, um, what happens on an extreme level. So we can, you can probably think of examples like in yourself that aren't as extreme. But basically... Um, the one of the features that ser serial killers seem to have is that they develop this kind of fantasy life where they they have this um, this fantasy of like the the perfect whatever like the perfect kill, and it becomes this controlling um, fantasy for them where they 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 constantly go back into their imagination and they're living out this fantasy, and so um, and it's often typically you know of course like a, a very violent fantasy they 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 get sexual pleasure out of this fantasy it's like um, um, you know, while uh, a more normal like kid, for instance, would you know maybe have a Playboy magazine or something, and and that would be hit the, what he goes to for that kind of that kind of hit for a serial for a serial killer or a budding serial killer, it would be um, he gives the example like a lot of them would read like detective stories, and they'd identify with the killer in the story, and they they develop this this um, this this story essentially that would be their fantasy life, and they would fantasize repeatedly over the years, like starting from young teenage years, maybe even before, and they, they develop this fantasy in their, in their minds of, um, you know, and that, that's why when, when you watch like TV shows about profilers, you know, and they have their, their, their one thing that they do and that's their kind of like uh, um, their signature, it's because that's the, the fantasy that they're trying to act out. Mm -hmm. And so in their mind, they, they basically build up this fantasy where, they, where it gets to the point where, oh, well, now you... They actually have to do it. It's not just in their mind anymore. They to get the full like pleasure, they have to act it out. Right. So what they find is that when they do, they'll, they they go and they they kill someone like in, in exactly the way that they fantasized, but it wasn't quite good enough. Mm -hmm. Like they did something wrong, something didn't go quite right, but it just it didn't give them the the pleasure that they were expecting. And so they do it again and again and again, and it's this constant chasing after something that they never actually get. And that's kind of. Uh, you know, an extreme version in a nutshell of what we're all doing when we're chasing this, you know, this, this dream of, of happiness. Um, in, in, in a way, happiness, um, like, you know, as defined by the, the way that we search for it culturally, mm -hmm. you know, the, the ways in which we, we think about it and that we, and that we um, the, the form that it takes when we, when we fantasize about it and we think about it, it's, we, we never quite get there. It remains elusive. Because it's it's not to go back to the Stoics. It's not in accordance with nature. We're searching for something that, like, we weren't actually designed to to fulfill. We're it's this it's this um, what you might call like a contingent goal that we've developed for ourselves a purpose, an end, um, you know, an an aim, a target that isn't really what we're part of our nature. Like, if we were to actually come to know ourselves and, and discover a bit more about our nature, we'd see, whoa, well, you know, I shouldn't even be searching for that in the first place because that's not the reason I'm here. Like, that's not my purpose. Mm -hmm. When you try to force it and make it your purpose, like, it's like uh, you're, you're batting your head up against a brick wall because you're, you're coming into contact with objective reality and objective reality is telling you, well, 
this isn't right. Mm -hmm. It's not going to work because that's not the, how the universe is set up. That's not the, you know, there are purposes, there are inherent objective purposes in, in the universe and in yourself and in, in your nature, your individual and your collective nature. And if you're, if you're trying to get outside of that framework, you're just going to fail because that's, it's not the way, you know, it's like trying to use a microwave to, you know, make a, a milkshake. It's like, it's not going to work. Um, it's not what it, it's not, it's not a purpose that is inherent in your nature. When you try to go against your nature, you're just going to fail. That's a, that's an interesting analogy. Uh, using a milkshake. For a milkshake. <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, although it is a very extreme example, um, it, it's also pretty striking as well. And, uh, and whoever fights monsters among others is one of those visceral books that, um, that really does kind of uh, help one to put the kibosh on uh, on the living the fantasy life and um, and spending you know inordinate amounts of energy and time uh, and focus and imagination in in self satisfying pursuits um, and it's really scary to think that that anything that self Anything that destructive to others and to oneself uh, starts in the realm of, of fantasy. Um, so we're we're being asked, we're being told to identify with all of these uh, these things uh, in consumerist culture, uh, in a culture that would have us um, out of out of a sense of greed, out of a sense of competitiveness, um, pursue jobs and careers that. Um, you know that that promise uh, for this elusive uh, status or stature of success, this this place of uh, that this kind of vaunted um, position in society and, and among your friends and family, um, that that can also be, if not put in its place and not viewed with the proper perspective, uh, destructive. And he talks about it, and and what I didn't remember. Um, and was like a reminder in rereading this was um, that that people just shut down, uh, having having for years um, worked sixty hour work weeks at at jobs that that weren't fulfilling, um, and some people spend I don't know what the statistics are, but there's a certain percentage of people who actually shut down. Uh, Maybe they've reached a certain level of success, and then they're completely burnt out, um, and have to shunt themselves away from from people in their lives and and uh, and any kind of life, uh, just to just to come to some kind of sense of normalcy uh, within themselves. Uh, this is a phenomenon also in the highly competitive culture of Japan, where you know kids are brought up to study like crazy, try and get into the best schools. Um, it's really this kind of pathologizing of a, of a whole segment of, of young people um, who have to attain these, you know, these incredibly high grades because they're told to uh, study untold hours. And, and what he says is interesting. He says that, you know, there's a, there's a, a rebelliousness um, naturally, of, of shutting down and refusing to take part when these kids have reached their limits. But it's also this kind of, 
you know, so they sabotage themselves. They do things to uh, make themselves ineligible um, for, they act out basically. Um, but what ends up happening is they've managed to extricate themselves from this, um, from this race of competitiveness that, they're, that is really unhealthy um, without realizing it. So, like on the on the surface of it, it may seem like, you know, a a particular child student is unhealthy, um, suffered a breakdown. But really, it's a it's a kind of protective mechanism among a certain percentage of students, uh, who who decide to just drop out, um, and and react and and respond in some ways. Uh, so I found that very interesting. Um, because a certain amount of ambition is is extremely unhealthy. Now, at the same time, I was thinking a lot about Jordan Peterson, and and how a certain amount of disagreeableness, a certain amount of ambition, a certain amount of uh, of um, wanting to achieve success and material stability is a healthy thing. Um, so hopefully, you know, we're we're giving a, a bit of a nuanced. Uh, presentation here. It, it's not. It's not all bad to want material things. Of course, it's not all bad to want to succeed and uh, to achieve some level of self-actualization and individuation and growth through a particular career path. Um, but there is certainly a level of unhealthiness uh, that the U.S. in particular nurtures in people without their even realizing it. Um, I mean, we are a bunch of the, we are some of the most greedy, power hungry, competitive, uh, bunch of, uh, you know, bleep bleeps, uh, that, that Western civilization has ever seen. And it's so concentrated right now. It's so, uh, unhealthy. Uh, it's become so much a part of the norm. Um, I mean, you might. You know, you might forgive Trump, for instance, for wanting to MAGA. Uh, but the way he's going about it with his persecution of, of Chinese companies that are in direct competition with the U.S. is crazy. So, uh, you know, if you've read this ongoing saga with Huawei, um, if that's how it's pronounced. Huawei, I think. Huawei, thank you. I'll brush up on my Chinese. Uh, it, it's... You know, it, 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 it's it's awful. Um, he you know he has to literally persecute uh, employees of this of this company that's providing competition for U.S. Uh, technology companies uh, in in order to bolster U.S. technology companies. Uh, it's pathetic, really, um, and uh, but it's. It's also, in a way, pure Trump uh, at his worst. Um, so just a few thoughts about, about that. Well, I want to go back to something you said right before that about the, the kind of... Well, and something I said previously about the individualism and individualistic kind of um, nature, specifically that quote from, that I read from the book on what contributes to greed. Mm -hmm. It's like, and the, the idea that you said about um, trying to give a nuanced view. It's not like... It's not like being individualistic, for instance, is totally bad. 
because there's like there's often a debate between like the 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 ills and evils of individualism versus collectivism <clears throat> and some will be you know stake their uh, put their stake in the ground for either one um, and talking about the benefits of either one and I think that's that in itself is an overly simplistic way of looking at things. It's like the way I see it, there's positive individualism and negative individualism and positive collectivism and negative collectivism. Because if you have nothing but like individualism, um, what that essentially means is that you think that, that you are, that, well, you might agree that individuals have value because um, that's the, 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 the point of analysis or the, the, the level of analysis that you look at the world through is through individuals. And but like what we what people tend to think of when they think of individualism in a bad way is you think that you're the only individual that has value, so you are only in it for yourself at the expense of under, other individuals. And then on the other hand, you have collectivists who see the group as the the ultimate good to to the um, to the detriment of the individual. So like individuals, um, well. Well, but then you have the, the healthy ones of, of both or the positive poles of either one. So you have a positive individualism where you do see everyone as individuals and you, and you treat everyone as an individual as having value. So there's kind of a collectivism that comes out of individualism by seeing everyone as, as a valuable individual. You naturally have concern for the collective, for the group in which you find these individuals. And then in the... Um, and on the collectivist side, you have like the, the negative version and the positive one, which is the same thing, where you are looking out for the, the you know the good, the greater good of the wider community. But um, so positive individualists will, um, I'd say, like see themselves as, as individuals and be willing to sacrifice themselves for the greater good, for for um, for the group, essentially for the community. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll be willing to make a personal sacrifice. Because of the that individualism, because of that that uh, individualism that they've developed in themselves, whereas like a negative collectivist will sacrifice the individual mm. for the sake of the group. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference there, right? So on the one hand, you have the group with no regard for the individual, sacrificing them for you know the so-called greater good. It's like, well, sorry, you have to go because you know we all need you to go. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you have the individual saying, well, I'm going to sacrifice myself for for all of you because right. I care about all of you. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there has to be, there has to be some nuance in that view too. It's like, um, you can't just say individualism, bad collectivism, good, or, you know, collectivism, good, or I can't even remember which order I was saying them in, but you know, you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there, there needs to be some middle ground, some, you know, some nuance, you know, taking those two options and, and looking at the, you know, the positives and negatives of both of them. Well, uh, inherent in what you said uh, goes back to what Jordan Peterson uh, talks about a lot, which is personal responsibility. And so that positive individual uh, is, is in sacrificing himself, taking responsibility for uh, the, the, the greater good or the, uh, the community that he exists within, where uh, the the kind of negative um, person who is who is part of the group uh, is going to shunt responsibility, scapegoat, and project all of the ills onto individuals 
who usually are ideologically at odds with with uh, with what is then in vogue. Um, and this kind of reminds me of a portion of the book where Schumacher talks about relationships with people uh, and how quite often, um, you know, that the, the, the happiness that could be derived from giving one's, uh, giving of oneself and attention to, uh, to friendship, to family, uh, to children, to one's partner, um, gets sacrificed um, and and kind of deprioritized and belittled uh, in the pursuit of uh, kind of drawing things to oneself as opposed to um, giving outward and and sharing love and knowledge and and attention outward uh, and he he gives some excellent examples of how that exists in, in Western culture in terms of the amount of time that most people spend at their careers, uh, the amount of time people um, pursue doing things by themselves, um, on their phones, on their computers, uh, self-absorbed uh, on, on certain things instead of uh, outwardly focused. Um, and uh, and he gives some wonderful quotes uh, along those lines as well. I'm going to look for them um, in a moment or so. If I can find them, I'll, I'll read well, them. You look for those, and in the meantime, I'll, uh, I'll read a couple quotes of my own. <laughs> First, um, one from Einstein that Shoemaker includes. Um, Albert Einstein once said, Happiness never appeared to me as an absolute aim. I am even inclined to compare such moral aims to the ambitions of a pig. Um, just some food for thought there. And then another one. This is from, uh, not in the book, but this is from um, Gurdjieff's magnum opus, Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson, All and Everything. Um, this is a quote he ascribes to the, the great Mullah Nasruddin, um, if you know anything, the, the donkey riding sage. Mm. And... Uh, this is what uh, Mullah Nasser Adin had to say about happiness. Every real happiness for man can arise exclusively only from some unhappiness, also real, which he has already experienced. We kind of touched on one interpretation of that earlier when, uh, when you said, you know, everything that comes up must come down, that um, you can't stay forever in, like, happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, you can try your best to to stay forever in unhappiness, of course. A lot of people try to do that too, but it doesn't really work. Um, that's not the way human, it's not human nature, right? Human, na- <clears throat> human nature fluctuates. Um, but also there's a, another idea in there that has to do with, with sacrifice and, and uh, what I was talking about earlier, is that you can only get happiness out of some real unhappiness. That, that be- Because things go up and down, it's like you can look at that as being, okay, well, if things go up and down, that means that I can only be happy if I put myself through some unhappiness, it's part of the it's part of the deal. Basically, can't be happy without some un, without some unhappiness. And I think Shoemaker even points out that uh, you know you the, the only the only reason you can know what happiness is is because you know it's it's opposite, something to compare it with. You know what it's like not to be happy. So you can either 
put yourself at the at the whim of the forces of the universe to you know to just blow you around like the we uh, like a leaf in the wind and oh I'm unhappy now because of these external forces oh I'm happy now um, and have no control over it or you can kind of like try to hack the system basically and say okay well this is the way it works so how can I make this work for me mm-hmm. well I know I'm gonna I'm, I know I'm gonna suffer I know I'm gonna be unhappy so how about I make my unhappy? How, how about I choose my suffering? How about I choose my unhappiness to the degree that I can? And that, of course, involves sacrifice. So you have to choose what you're going to sacrifice. Choose where you're you're going to suffer to some degree, and that can be um, well. It should be in in the pursuit of a of a higher aim, of a further you know a further goal, a further target. It's like you're not just okay. Uh, you're not just looking for suffering, right? Okay, what what are the what are the best ways I can just make myself suffer? Well, you could come up with all kinds of ways, but they're not going to they're not going to be in the service of any greater goal. It's like that and if you're doing that, you're just making your goal suffering. But if you're actually if you if you want to have some kind of uh, if you want your suffering suffering to have some kind of meaning in the uh, in the context of a greater goal, it's like, well, that can be very easy. It's like and that and people do that all the time. They just don't think about it. It's like whenever they have a goal, they they will inherently sacrifice something. So when you go to when you're going to school, when you're trying to get a degree or whatever, when you're just in in like elementary school and you're tra- taking a test, when you have a test coming up, it's like you you study. And that study is a form of suffering for, most likely for <laughs> for uh no for me it was. I didn't like school. But um you you Set aside something that you want to do to do something that you don't want to do in order to to get a, like a, a goal that's out in the future that um, you know isn't immediately um, like relevant to you. It's like um, you're 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 putting off your um, uh, what what do they call it in psychology the um, you know with the marshmallow study the delayed gratification. Mm-hmm. Um, you know you put it off in the future and you make a sacrifice now for that delayed gratification. And um, you can apply that dynamic to every goal, every every goal that you have. It's like, well, what is the suffering that you're going to have to go through in order to get that goal? Well, it could be that you you know sacrifice a lot of your time, and it could be that you you expose yourself to a lot of um, criticism and even ridicule. Um, but if it's in the service of the aim, then it has meaning, then it has purpose. It's like, and I think that's why. Um, well, that's a big part of the you know the story that um, that. Most of us in the, you know, in in Western and European cultures, and well, you know, all over the world, um, the specifically Christian cultures, it's like that's the story of of the Christ. It's it, it's that ultimate. It's that sacrifice. It's that sacrifice for uh, for um, you know a future um, gratification. Well, even then, like uh, Shoemaker talks about satisfaction and gratification, and how we don't really know what we're talking about when we talk about that because like the satisfaction is um is is something that comes um basically when when you uh when you fulfill like a, a need or something or like it, it's the you have satisfaction when something is completed so um you have satisfaction when you like complete a, a level in a video game or you know you finish reading a book or you know it's that something has been satisfied it has been like completed in some way and um but that's not happiness in fact what 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 he says is that what stimulates happiness is that lack of satisfaction because that lack of satisfaction, it's kind of like, that's the drive to, to, I guess, to, to like, you know, reach out and, and find something new or to do something. It's like any, any kind of action must come from a, you know, a state of, you know, uneasiness in the sense that you aren't satisfied right now. 
So you, you are looking for something, you're, you're moving towards something, you're, you're aiming at something. And it is, it's that state that, uh, that will basically bring happiness because the, you won't, you, the satisfaction of, of some you know, thing isn't the actual, isn't the happiness. That, that might just be a, you know, a small dopamine hit like we were talking about. So he kind of warns that um, um, like in the face of, I think this is what he writes, in the face of widespread satisfaction, um, you basically, you need to work harder, you need to sacrifice in order to create that opening for happiness that lack of satisfaction, that, uh, that kind of readiness potential. It's like where you're, 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 I can't figure out how to describe it other than, you know, being that in that state of unease, it's like wanting something more. And then, um, he writes that complete satisfaction of false needs is basically what blocks happiness. So when you have, when you have all of these like minor, like goals and, and, um, aims that you're, that you're searching for, which could be like, you know, like shopping, like compulsive shopping. It's like when you, when you satisfy those aims, it's like that won't lead to happiness. That blocks happiness. Um, because there are these bigger aims and these bigger goals and these uh, like wider aspects of life and of human nature that are being left um, neglected. Mm-hmm. And that should cause some unease, right? If, if you examine your life and you see that there are all these areas of life that you're ignoring, it's like that should be like, oh, well, you know, I got, I've, I've got to get my act together and, you know, see what I can do about all the, in all these other areas of my life. And that will reorient your, um, you know, the targets that you're, that you're projecting into the future, which will then change your behaviors. And if you, you know, w- when all of those are done in coordination with each other, you've got this kind of, that's the, the big target that I was talking about at the beginning of the show that coordinates all of your other, you know, all your other aims, all your, all the other things you're aiming at. And the, and the, the process of, of, um, you know, moving in that direction and aiming at that larger target is like the, the kind of the, the, the push towards that goal of happiness, you know, the the ultimate, the ultimate happiness. Well, that's the word right there process, I think, uh, which, which I kept thinking about as you were describing this Harrison, that, um, that it is a process. It's not, uh, it, it's not something that, um, you know, we're always told that if you reach this level of attainment in, in whatever sphere, uh, then you will be happy, then you could be happy. Uh, but that's not it. Um, it's, it's the, it's the uh, perpetual um, searching for those things that, that do give our, our lives meaning in the, in the deeper sense um, that facilitate happiness without looking for happiness. Um, and I guess that's, there's a whole mechanism involved um, in living our lives and, and, and keeping on top of all the many different things that we need to keep on top of uh, that, that have less and less to do with uh, the ephemeral um, goals and, and things we think will make us happy. Um, but I, I wanted to read this portion here because um, I think it spoke to a number of things you were just mentioning um, on, on the subject of tomorrow, on the subject of, of this kind of long-term uh, macro approach to, uh, to attaining happiness indirectly. Um, so Schumacher writes... 
The famous humanistic psychologist Carl Rogers wrote about the importance of becoming a person of tomorrow in order to arrive at a happiness that is superior to the type found in consumer society. Interestingly, he said that tomorrow's happiness would probably not be experienced at all like the happiness of today. The person of tomorrow may not even regard herself or himself as especially happy since their approach to life would be growth-oriented, one that regarded the good life as an ongoing process rather than an incessant state of satisfaction or titillation. The happiness of the person of tomorrow was seen by Rogers as the result of continually moving in the direction of caring, authenticity, wholeness, intimacy, and openness. It would also come by way of cultivating reverence for nature, learning the unimportance of material things, developing skepticism about technology and science as a harbinger of happiness, and expanding one's spiritual sensitivities. But this happiness was seen as possible only if individuals could shift authority to within themselves while training themselves to become anti-institutional. This speaks of the fact that genuine happiness in today's world is a form of protest. Far more than a simple intellectual daily choice, it is a revolutionary response that calls upon the person to entertain doubt and to question the norms of their host culture. And, I mean, I have to agree, especially about this last bit. Um, we have to consciously make a decision not to uh, become victims of, of host culture, groupthink, and conventional thinking on a number of things. Um, there, there has to be a certain amount of, of time spent uh, reflecting on the messages that we're being given, why they're being given to us, who they're being given by, and why we should or shouldn't accept those messages. Um, at least so it seems to me. And in this age of information overload, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of work. Um, I would say the default state should be to, to be skeptic, skeptical, given the fact that the, the sheer numbers of, of messages we're being given are false. Um, and likely to serve the people who are giving the messages or who are sponsoring the messages um, or paying people to, uh, to promulgate the messages. Um, so finding happiness uh, for tomorrow um, would seem to be a revolutionary response, as Schumacher says here. Um, because everything that we're, we're being fed, uh, it seems designed to keep us exactly where we've been, uh, with, with very little of a pathway, um, to a growth oriented life and the ongoing process that would that would ultimately fulfill us a lot more than uh, what we're being told. Well, maybe before we finish for today, 
Um, we've got a short video to play, but before that, I just want to say that uh, uh, I just want to reference uh, Dabrowski's theory of positive disintegration, for, especially for those uh, viewers who haven't heard of it yet. Um, we've covered it on our old show, Truth Perspective, but we don't have that uh, any of those up on YouTube yet. Um, but um, Dabrowski would kind of, um, he'd agree that uh, kind of more with the, uh, the Einstein quote that I read, that uh, the kind of the, the drive for happiness as a, as a, as a pers- the, the, the soul or the, the greatest goal or pursuit in, in, uh, in life is probably completely wrong, wrong-headed. And that, um, um, well, he basically, he, just like Gurdjieff, argues for the role of suffering and that, um, that basically in order to kind of fulfill that human nature that Aristotle talked about requires um, that those periods of unhappiness or or um, disintegration that uh, that Gurdjieff talked about in that quote, and he kind of, um, I just rec- I'll recommend going through our archives, um, checking out the Truth Perspective, or just you know finding Dabrowski's stuff online, and uh, you know some of his books are available on Amazon, so check that out. And the so before we end, here's a clip that we'll talk about a bit. This is from um, Roger Scrutton and his appearance. I believe it was at Cambridge. I don't know. We'll include the link below just to to be sure. But um, he appeared there with Jordan Peterson, and this was a question that they received. Uh, we'll only play Scrutton's response, and it was basically just on this topic on happiness. So let's go ahead and play that. What I what I would say uh, is that um, happiness means ultimately. The fulfil- your fulfilment as a person, uh, uh, and that, that that isn't the same as gratification of your desires. It, it is. It means the kind of transformation of your um, your being, such that you can look on what you are and say, for all my faults, uh, I accept that thing, uh, and the, and when there an, an occasion comes to rejoice, you accept it and enter it rather than th- say asking yourself do i deserve it you know uh, those uh, uh, w- you know, that that avoidance of of joy which many people have is actually itself a kind of narcissism the happy person goes out and embraces the the occasion for for, for rejoicing and he does so um, because uh, his own nature is at ease with itself uh, and he can incorporate this into it. Uh, of course, there's a lot more to it. There, there, one has to have, as Aristotle says, you know, uh, happiness is an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. What he meant was that, um, that if you don't have the virtues, you're treading always on a thin ground, mm-hmm. that, that you will fall through uh, you know, that, that uh, wonderful moment when it, at last she is going to say yes. You know, uh, you, you turn out, you, your, your nature as a predator is revealed, to use um, Jordan's image, and you fall uh, uh, irrecoverably. But uh, anyway, that's brief discourse on, on happiness. Well, that was, a, that was an interesting passage, and um, I, I like what he said. Um, I'm paraphrasing here. He said the, the capacity to accept one's faults, to basically to see oneself, uh, is perhaps connected with the capacity to accept one's successes and thereby experience joy from those successes. Um, 
So I guess accepting the suffering of, of knowing that we aren't perfect, that I'm not perfect, um, that I indeed have flaws, uh, that I make mistakes, um, that I'm sometimes in error, um, that I'm in, a, I'm in the, the process of growing, uh, is the same, um, part of the same thing that will allow me to have a good feeling about something that I can more objectively say, you know, that was good, that was accomplished, and, uh, and thank goodness for that, and, and really have that moment of, of, uh, of joy and accomplishment um, and, and success in it, put in its pr- proper perspective. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that one of the, I like the point he made about the, you know, allowing yourself to experience joy, you know, joyful moments, because a lot of people don't. Like, and they think that, they, that they're not allowed to or that they, it's bad if they do or they just, uh, you know, avoid it for whatever reason. But, um, you know, that too is just part of life. It's like, and, and if, you're, if you're one of those people that uh, doesn't like uh, feeling good every once in a while, it's, it's a real downer on everyone else too. So it's like, you know, when you're interacting with, like after this, uh, Jordan Peterson talks about the, that, that's what he focuses on and he talks about the importance of like play and, and joking around. And um, and I'm sure we all know someone who's just uh, you know a total wet blanket or you know the the downer of the the party or who's always uh, you know never willing to to join in on the fun and um, I, I think it's really important to to play and to, and to have fun and to laugh and uh, Shoemaker talks about that in the book too um, I don't know I think. Uh, I think I've kind of said everything I want to say about that. Um, any last thoughts, Milan? Uh, well, maybe we'll revisit this in another context, another time. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we've we've covered it. And uh, just want to thank our listeners for tuning in this week and listening. And uh, we have a couple of good shows planned in the near future. Uh, so do tune in. And hopefully you'll be catching Objective Health and Newsreel as they uh, as they come out on SOT. And until next time, take care. And thanks for listening. And uh, find good ways to be happy. All right, bye, everyone.